Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Elixir Mix. Today on our panel, we have Adi. Hello. Alan. Hello, hello. Sasha. Hello, everybody. Is this your first week back as a yes, regular? Yes, it is. It is. You want to just remind people how, how cool you are, why we invited you back? <laughs> so, yeah, a, a while ago, I, I was a guest joining the podcast and talking about a library of mine, Knigge, and like behaviors and mocking. I've been using Elixir for like over four years now. And I have a number of open source libraries published. So it's, it's great to now be here and talk to you and exchange ideas. Happy to be here. Nice. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And yeah, so we decided to talk about kind of the history and evolution of Elixir. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, I, th I think I kind of want to start this one off and kick it off. So the first podcast episode that I ever did related to Elixir was on Ruby Rogues. And you know, it's no surprise to anybody, I think, if you've been in the Elixir community for very long. We interviewed this guy who'd been in the Ruby community for a long time, written a whole bunch of Ruby libraries, Ruby gems, started a Ruby consultancy. And then he went off and was fiddling with this Erlang stuff and decided to write Elixir. So it was Jose Valim. And so, yeah, we were like, well, come, come tell us about this, this thing. And so he came on and he talked about Elixir and it was kind of like this funky thing that he did on the side while he was still writing all the Ruby stuff that we all used. So anyway, it's come a long way since then, obviously. But yeah, I, I like that flavor, right? Because you never know if the wacky project is going to turn into something that's it's this ecosystem that all these people earn a living at, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy how fast things have have kind of been rolled along, right? That this language just came out. Well, it came out quite some time ago, but it still feels like quite new to me, although it's been changing a lot, especially with this recent 1.12 release. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering what, what are kind of the big milestones or signposts, I guess, in Elixir's history that you guys see, right? I mean, some of them are going to come in, I guess, after you discovered Elixir, but what what were the turning points, I guess, that got you in in the first place, right? It's actually something which I'd say that got me in. Like when, maybe when I started with Elixir, it was just because my employer used Elixir. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I basically had to. But uh, when, when I started, I think that was 1.4 or 1.3. We didn't have a formatter back then. So it was always like, we always had these discussions about, okay, how should the code look like? Should we format it like this? Should we format it like that? So it was pretty cool when, I'm not sure which version exactly, but when Elixir finally got this opinionated formatter and a lot of these discussions just died down because, well, the formatter did this for you. Right. I have a question for you, Sasha, regarding that. So you said your employer was using it. Were they using it with Phoenix or were they using it for something else like Nerves or some other project? Yeah, at that point it was 
Phoenix, I think NERFs wasn't even in exist existence back then. So, I mean, that, that was probably about four years ago. Maybe it was already there, but they're definitely not as big as today. So, yeah, it was a, the company I used to work back then was doing a lot of IoT stuff. So the, the real-time capabilities of Elixir were pretty nice in that area, which is why, why, we, were, why we were using it. Right. The, the other question I have related to that is, so, so you came to it through a job, and it seems like a lot of people, when they go look for their next job, it's like, okay, I've got 50 zillion years doing JavaScript or Ruby or PHP or Python or whatever, right? And so they go and they just kind of stick with that technology because they've got so much seniority in it that they can kind of talk their way into whatever kind of job they want. So what made you take a job where you were going to be working in a different technology? The main reason was actually because I was switching over from a mobile developer job with like occasional oh, okay. back-end web development to like a full-time back-end development job, like more of a junior side. Because I, I, my previous employer, I did mostly iOS development, but I did the occasional PHP backend, and that was always something which I enjoyed more. So I was looking for an opportunity to work more in that area. And then I came across this other company, and they used Elixir and functional language, and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting enough. And now I'm here today. So things, I guess things work out. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Yeah, for me, it's one of the things I remember. It's something very simple and trivial, like the width statement that we now take for granted. Elixir, when it came out, it did not have that. And I remember even using, uh, I, don't think, I don't think there was even unless and all those things. And I know even using if was like, don't use it unless you really want to use it because it if kind of uses case within like cases, like the main statement. And it was actually my first job too, doing Elixir in 2015. And so Elixir was like just 1.0 at that time. And when we, they introduced with statement, it really kind of cleaned up our code quite a bit because, you know, now you're thinking in terms of that, that railway pattern, right? Like returning okay result or error, error. And that just cleans up your entire controller. And then Phoenix kind of adopted that pattern with the, fallback controller, right? Like cleaning up that error as well and like standardizing what errors your APIs would return and stuff. So I think that with kind of catalyzed that entire list of tools, I, I, I was a really big fan of with. Before that was basically nested case statements all the way down, right? Like a lot of nested right. case statements. And there, right. there wasn't much, anything else you could do. Like that was the way things were written, which also made sense when you think where Elixir came from, from also with Erlang, because that's how you do error handling in Erlang. You do nested right. case statements, or you pattern, like you match explicitly on the okay with value when you say, okay, I want to race here, but yeah. Right. Or you use the pipe operator, but the functions kind of can take okay or error. <laughs> and yeah, you change yeah. like your entire pipeline. <laughs> Definitely, you have written code like that. I've just looked at the, the release notes from Elixir. Like the format actually came in in 1.6, but there's a lot of good stuff in 1.6. Also, the dynamic supervisor came in there. So that was something we didn't have. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember that, that the supervisor still has this simple one-for-one -one strategy, right? Which is like kind of akin to the dynamic supervisor. But the, there's one thing about the simple one-for-one -one strategy that it's like a lie. It's not simple. <laughs> it's definitely not simple. I still don't it. understand that. <laughs> no, I mean, we had to use it in one project. And like, I mean, it was pretty new to Elixir. So I was like trying to read the documentation and like wrapping my head around it. And I just, I just failed. Just went to a colleague at some point. Like, Please explain this to me. Yeah, I'm kind of curious because I, 
I can't like pick out the features or anything because I've just kind of been watching the community more than participating in it. And over the years, like it, it was kind of this thing that was just kind of out there, you know, and, and the the airline community was also another community that was just kind of, I just kind of watched it and it's kind of steadily grown. And then I don't know what it was, but at some point it seems like the, the Elixir community just really took off. And I'm not sure where, I'm not sure why, I'm not sure what, but it really took off. And about, I want to say about four or five years ago was when it really kind of kind of caught up with me that a lot of the friends of mine that I had connected with over the years in the Ruby community had all moved to it. A lot of the people that I knew from some of the other communities had moved to it. I was actually getting asked on a regular basis when I was going to start an Elixir show. <laughs> So we started this one. I mean, was there something around then that really just gelled? Was it that they finally, there was Elixir Conf and there were some of these other things. Those tend to be more the symptoms of the community growing rather than the cause. I'm trying to put my finger on, you know, was there any one or several things that happened around then that, that kind of came together for it? I guess it must be like the bigger companies kind of adopting it, like Pepsi, e-commerce, and I know cars, <laughs> and you know, like the, the like who were like more legacy kind of uh, programming languages. Them adopting it, I actually remember like a more quantifiable like difference. The difference in the number of sponsors and number of people in Elixir Conf 2017 and 2018, mm-hmm. and they announced it at the keynote that the number of sponsors they have more than quadrupled (laughs) in one year and it's just that what happened during that time i don't don't know (laughs) yeah i guess that makes sense i mean i think another thing that i saw at the time was and i guess this isn't a technical milestone but so i got invited to code beam in 20 2018 or 2019 but there were a whole bunch of talks from yeah these bigger companies that were talking about and they weren't like talking some of them were talking about how they had built their infrastructure on the beam and how they had built a lot of it on elixir but more than that they were talking about how they had scaled how they had lowered the response times and a lot of the concurrency setups that they were doing and things like that and so they had actually solved a lot of the issues that existed in some of the systems that they had had before by migrating to elixir and some of them were like these huge setups, like WhatsApp, I think was one of them. I think Discord does a whole bunch of stuff in the back end with uh, Elixir. There are a whole bunch of other ones. And and they were like these massive, massive backend systems that either run in like dedicated data centers or run in the cloud. And I mean, they just like crush the amount of bandwidth and data that just, just course through them. And... Yeah, I think people really saw what Elixir systems were capable of that you couldn't do with, say, a Node.js or a Ruby on Rails. And people started saying, okay, well, if I need, say, data over forms, then .NET, Ruby on Rails, it makes sense, right? But if I need, if if I'm sending raw data, audio data, if I'm sending gobs and gobs and gobs of chat data, it makes a lot of sense to have a, a system that can handle the volume of data, but not just the volume, but the sheer number of discrete messages at a time. And that's that's where I think people figured out, oh, yeah, I need something that can do this. 
And Elixir was easier for the developers to digest than Erlang. I think a huge part of that is also how easy it is to pick up Phoenix. Because, I mean, you just also said yeah. to like um, submit a form, right? Save a form that's super easy in Rails, but it's also su super easy in Phoenix. So you can get started pretty easily there too. But then the, the scaling story is a completely different one. So while, while Erlang, yeah, is certainly something which could also super easily handle these, these, these scaling scenarios, it's not as easy to pick up as Elixir is. So I think a lot of the success came, came from that too. That, that people could see, okay, yeah, this, this can scale to different like different ways and, and maybe better than, than other technologies out there, but it's also not as super hard to pick up as some of these more, let's say, niche things. Totally. Yeah, I, that's definitely, I think, a huge point. And as you guys are talking about it, I just like, it kind of reminded me of my older days with Elixir and like, why did I like Elixir? And I just like, I also realized like, everyone around me seemed to just love Elixir. And I've, and the the involvement of you know Jose and Chris McCord in the community and like listening to feedback and advertising and you know Jose was being involved in like Phoenix and writing mocks and like kind of driving the community's vision forward while keeping it fun for developers, right? Like I mean, like everyone who's worked with Elixir wants to work in Elixir. So like companies who've adopted Elixir a little bit have no choice but to adopt it more because people who work there want to keep working in Elixir. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like uh, in 2015, my first job, my first project, we built the with the company's first Elixir app. And in 2020, we're probably building its 30, 30th Elixir app. <laughs> so just like, because I didn't want to write, build a Ruby on Rails app. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, it's interesting too. A friend of mine, He's actually the one that recruited me at my current um, employer. Uh, he just let everybody know he was leaving and he's going to a company that was founded by the folks that founded the company that I guess I'm, it, it's kind of the company I'm at that was acquired by the company that I'm at. So it, they, they're his former bosses, not mine, but because he'd been there for several years. But yeah, they're doing Rails and Elixir. And I'm, I'm wondering if it was that same kind of thing, right? Where they started with Rails because this company uses Rails pretty much exclusively. And then that somebody brought in Elixir and it's just kind of taken over most of the new stuff. It's certainly something I observe at my current employer because we also use Elixir and we use Rails. And we have some very, very long-term Rails developers who are like really attached to Rails and Ruby. But we have also some colleagues who like don't didn't have a lot of Rails or Elixir background before they joined. And what, what ends up happening is that especially the people who don't have like a strong uh, attachment one way or another, after a while, prefer to write things in Elixir. I, I can't like point to specific things and say, okay, it's this one reason why, but it's an interesting trend I, I, I've observed that like if, if people basically don't, don't come with pre-attached notions, they tend to like hover, okay, like maybe I write this additional service here in Elixir just because I, I like it to do that, that that way. That's certainly something I've observed for myself. I mean, I, I'm this odd unicorn who did Ruby after I did uh, Elixir. So I never wrote a line of Ruby before I've already written a bunch of lines in Elixir. So um, <laughs> my, my judgment is probably a bit clouded there. <laughs> Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how, how, how people react to these technologies, especially when they don't have a lot of experience before. Yeah, I try not to be too precious about it. But at the end of the day, I get in and I eventually just want to get crap done. 
And Rails is just the thing that I'm most familiar with, right? And so it's like, oh, I just banged out four features, right? Instead of I had to go figure out how to do this in Phoenix too, because I didn't know how to do it before. But I can definitely see, you know, it, it, it has some characteristics. And I see the performance metrics on Elixir and I'm just going, holy crap, that is just fast. So another milestone that I am fully aware of and was around when we interviewed Chris McCord for, or when it came out, was LiveView. And that was, I mean, that that was a big deal. And I have some friends that have kind of duplicated that for Rails with Stimulus, right? Stimulus Reflux. But that was amazing. That was freaking amazing. Yeah, I, I was actually on the Elixir uh, Conf, like uh, Elixir Conf Europe, when when Chris McCall also did a demo, and that was like super impressive because he did like he did this demo with like the way he animated things, where he also said like, okay, it's a super bad idea to do the animation with Live View, but just to show you like <laughs> you you can like it works, it's fast enough to do like an animation at smooth. So yeah, that was that was insane just to to see like this this thing on stage live by by Chris. And then it really took up steam. I mean, the, you just mentioned stimulus reflex, but there's also like a PHP kind of version of it. I'm, I'm not 100 sure how it's called. That this no, it's 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 Rails. It runs over Action Cable on the Rails. Yeah, I, I know. Like stimulus reflex is, 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 is on Rails, but there's also a PHP clone of LiveView. Like uh, I'm not 100. Yeah, there there are other called. clones of it. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's called. So that one's called Livewire. And actually, if you know Alpine, Alpine actually came out as from the same guy. And now we're using Alpine within LiveView, right? So there's a lot of things that actually come outside the community that also inspire or, or help out us too, which I think is something that we should talk about too, because, or something that needs to be mentioned at least, because uh, it seems like we always inspire people, right? LiveView came out and it seems like an explosion of people doing similar things like Livewire and I think the, the one in Rails, I forgot, is that called Stimulus or is that Stimulus is something else similar? And then there's, uh, yeah, now we, we got Alpine, right? And that came from the PHP community and that's mm-hmm. part of the Tailwind, or that's part of the uh, pedal stack, right? Which is pretty huge. Yeah, I keep wanting to do Alpine on JavaScript Jabber. We just haven't managed to get them around yet. But yeah, it's brought about kind of these mini frameworks, bringing them back. Yeah, I think Alpine was also like a big prompt for, for Chris McCall to add these JavaScript hooks into by few so it was interesting to see like how, how these ideas bounce back and forth between like these like different communities to inspire each other to build something like bigger than the parts of this bigger than some of the parts just curious to see like what's going to be the next big thing right like i mean <laughs> we just talked talk live view it's like NX. the last like, big thing nx yeah 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 probably probably Maybe. nx yeah well There's and, a lot of and that's there. interesting too because NX is the mathematics library, right? Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that, so I I host a whole bunch of the shows on devchat.tv, including Adventures in Machine Learning. And what's interesting is, is that we keep having conversations about some of the limitations of Python and JavaScript, because those are the two primary languages, mostly Python, and and specifically in their ability to parallelize. And Elixir, Erlang, Beam languages kind of have that figured out. <laughs> yeah. Just saying, right? And so I keep thinking that, yeah, if you can train your your models and you can just, here's the data, go, 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 right? Your limitation is your number of cores. Yeah. 
Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. It sounds like a great fit for Elixir, yeah. But when, when, I, when I learned about that, I was like, this, I, I thought that that would like break a lot of things, like bigger than live view. Uh, it, yeah, it's just, it's almost revolutionary. And the amount that Jose is invested to see this through, like they, I know like within seven days of announcing NX, they had started and like kind of gotten like a neural networks library axon like workable. <laughs> like that's the amount of hours they're putting into it. It's crazy. <laughs> it's super cool to see how, how Jose is also contributing to like stuff beyond the core language, right? Like I mean also Broadway and stuff like that. a lot of a lot of yeah, really yeah. cool things. NX, Axon also have like just has Jose's Jose has his hands in there. Like it's pretty cool to see that. Yeah. And I was super impressed by NX, like that, that they did a mo like pretty much all of that was done without like adding new stuff to the language, right? Like, like having these, what's it called, DevN, where the computation happens on the GPU, if I remember correctly. I'm, to be honest, that's not my area of expertise. I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and then just like build all of this with like the tools which were already there, like super cool, super impressive. And like speaking of NX, they are they're also building. They built. I don't know if you guys have tried the live book stuff uh, for like like NX demoing. And I think I know they did like a lot of like scripting updates in the new Elixir release for Live View, like the mixed install. You know, ability to like without having to do a mix project, you, you can just do mix install in a script and like pull a new package and try it out. I think they did that for Live Book, which I think is part of the NX uh, ecosystem at the very least. Mm -hmm. And that's also very exciting. Like uh, I actually like have considered try to convince my publisher should we or should we write a live book version of my book as well? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd certainly play around with that. So <laughs> you have at least one person who's interested. Awesome. That's all I needed. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is is that just the nature of the beam and elixir to me. There's so many directions it could really go i mean that's what's hard on how to pin down what the next big thing is going to be right the communities that got brought into it were kind of traditional communities but yeah especially with like an xx now i mean there's, there's an influx of people from different communities now right so these people yeah. are going to bring in their ideas and like who knows where that's going to end up like right. i i certainly don't because like machine learning is something for me like yeah, that's like, there here be dragons. Magic happens here. That's not my area of expertise. So I, I wouldn't have expected this to, to work out like it did. I was I was a bit when I like first heard about the announcement of NX and like people uh, thinking that this might be a machine learning thing. I was a bit skeptical, but yeah, that, that blew me out of the water. When I, so yeah, it's really, really hard just to, to think well, what, what's the next thing that's just going to pop up, especially with people coming in and their new ideas. Sounds like whatever Jose gets into. <laughs> <laughs> that may not be so far off. <laughs> but it is it because he got into machine learning or because he kind of saw that that was kind of a right field to pluck? I think both. <laughs> he said he says very casually in his demos that I'm, I was just dabbling with machine learning and you know I thought I'll write NX. <laughs> 
obviously he thought about its futures and stuff. He won't be like investing so much time without knowing that uh, the right fit, like you said, Chuck. Yeah, we're gonna have quantum elixir. <laughs> That'll be awesome. <laughs> Just run it on some qubits. IBM, we're coming for you. But yeah, I I think it occupies a lot of space and. I think some of it is ripe for disruption. I, I honestly think that traditional web development is ripe for dis- disruption at this point. I don't know what's going to come in and hit it, but it is. And so, yeah, you know, kind of seeing the next thing, it, it's exciting to see that they're looking at it. People like Jose. You don't know. I, I know there were like talks of like uh, WebAssembly and Elixir or Beam at least last year. I don't know if, if anything happened about, with that. I don't know if you guys know. Yeah, Lumen, Lumen, it's called. So Lumen oh. is like this WebAssembly thing written in Rust, where they try to basically get get Beam languages run in, in the browser, and they mm. deliberately don't try to like build the full Beam because. Like madness, but like yeah. like a, like a browsery five version of it. And, wow, very cool. But I'm not, I'm not sure where they're standing. I mean, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, we had a really interesting discussion on JavaScript Jabber about web containers, and I don't think I could even do it justice. But they managed to get Node, like full on Node, running in the browser, and yeah, the guys over at Stack Blitz. <laughs> And they were explaining how they put it all together and crap like that. And it was it was pretty wild, right? And it runs on WebAssembly and uses WebAssembly threads and things like that. And yeah, you bringing up WASM, I mean, it does, it crosses my mind. It's like how much, even, even a slightly hampered version of Elixir running on WASM, what can we do in this kind of secure sandboxed arena that, is a web container, what kind of apps, what kind of functionality, what kinds of things can we do with that that may consume some of this? I don't know. I mean, it's 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 crazy what people are coming up with. Yeah. Yeah. Like one thing I think is like also interesting there is that when you actually, for example, look at the performance characteristics of live view, a lot of time is spent like encoding and decoding JSON. So for example, if you would then actually have something running in the browser, understanding native Elixir data types, you, you lose that overhead. So maybe that would also boost performances into new areas like which we haven't seen before. But right. Like who knows? Right. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, speaking of like similar projects, there was an OpenGL Elixir port that was happening at one point too. Someone gave a talk about that in ElixirCon 2017. Or at least like OpenGL-like interface. I don't want to say OpenGL mm-hmm. itself, but uh, like just graphics, bringing graphics to Elixir. Don't know about that it's state also not sure if it's a thing anymore yeah that was void wasn't it i believe the guy came from xbox i think the name sounds familiar yeah yeah so that's still going on actually he created a whole company with that and he's kind of working a lot of uh, stuff and i think he presented something a year or two ago where it's really looking quite nice and you can remotely log into these guis and play with them like you're actually there so he's really moving forward with that. In fact, I think he just got a chair in, in the Elixir in the Erlang Foundation. Oh, wow. Or something, if I remember. Yeah, so it may seem like it's not going forward. But as far as I know, like, if you make a company that's going to be selling this kind of service, you're moving forward. You're just, you're selling to businesses, right? Because what he's investing heavily into it. Businesses have the cash to pay for that, not individual people. And 
you know, open source kind of communities. Oh wait, so, I think I think we might be mixing up. Yeah, I just I just googled it. Uh, I think what you're talking about is uh, scenic, right? Yeah, um, yeah, scenic. That right one I think now. also uses OpenGL, right? I just wanted to mention scenic. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think scenic uses OpenGL. Yeah. Uh, at least I don't think it did. I thought it was just a very simple way to build. I, I thought I thought it used WebGL for the desktop environments, but my understanding might be off. From what I've heard, scenic is mostly used like where, like more in embedded areas. Like it's not really like the the, the um, reactive UI scenario, but more like okay, I know that I have a screen of size X, so I can can now build some kind of interface with that. But I, but I might be off here. Like but that was at least something I've heard when I, when I last looked at scenic. Yeah, that was also my my reading that I remember is that yeah, you have to kind of know your screen size or else you mm. be in a in a world of pain. Right there, it's just no way to change it. Yeah, I will say. I mean, one one thing that's also interesting is how many inroads Nerves has made in the IoT community because it it makes a dent and it is a lot nicer to use than a lot of the other IoT library libraries that are out there. And and that may be a place where that things crack wide open because a lot more things are becoming programmer enabled. And so as you open that up, and again you you spin up another process, you spin up another thing that is talking to your your stuff on your network, right? And and you have multiple cores and everything plays nicely together to share resources on your controlling machine. I mean, it it's cool stuff. I've been tempted for years to just figure out nerves and then to figure out how to make it do a big Christmas light display on my front lawn, you know, and just just program the crap out of it, right? And I think it'd be way fun. And I don't know, but you can do all kinds of things with that. And and I've I I remember going to CodeBeam and going to some uh, some of the other conferences and seeing talks at some of the Elixir related conferences and Erlang related conferences where they're using things like Nerves for commercial applications where they're literally speaking over modems you know sending data back and forth and doing really interesting stuff with that and anyway all kinds of different directions that this could go it's it's really really cool speaking of nodes i know there's like a company very they exclusively work on embedded apps for with elixir mm-hmm. they're a consulting company and they i think they have they're big enough that it's like surprising that there are and so many projects going on that use nerves um, it's exciting yeah, one of the past panelists on this show was it Mark? I think Mark was the one that was running the the Nerves online meetup group, hmm. and they they were doing all kinds of cool stuff. And yeah, I think we're gonna keep going more and more into a more enabled world, and it'll just be cool to see where where that can take us to. And then if it gets opened up into a machine learning world, what can you do with all that data, right? Yeah, now that we've talked about it, like it's it's interesting to see in how many directions this is going, right? I mean, we have, we have live view, we have an NX machine learning, we have nerves, we have, we have uh, scenic. There's a lot of motion, a lot of areas. That's it's, it's interesting to observe this. We just need to get into mobile, and then we'll be the new JavaScript. Yeah, totally. So like live view native. So that that's what they're saying. Yeah, there we go. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, 
get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right. Well, should we start wrapping it up, do some picks? All right. Adi, why don't you start us off with picks? Great. So I don't really have like picks, traditional picks this time. I have a couple really cool companies I know that are hiring for Elixir developers. Shoot. Uh, Do we do that? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so first one is uh, SimpleBet. They, uh, we spoke about NX. Unfortunately, they don't use NX yet for their machine learning, but they are using mach- machine learning in Elixir and Rust in some capacity, and they sound very exciting. And other one is my, the company where I first started working, NKSAM. They are in Boston, and they are looking for a junior, mid, or senior Elixir developer. Uh, both sound like great places to work. And, and links will be in the description. Awesome. Alan, do you have some picks? I definitely have one pick that I'm very happy about recently. It's been out for some time, but I don't know if you guys ever played with it, but I've been trying to use uh, Tailwind more and more these days. Mm-hmm. And they came out with this JIT compiler that is really interesting and really, really fast compared to normal Node.js stuff. And the cool thing about it is that you can dynamically create new classes as you're actually coding up your web pages. Have you guys seen this before? Or it's really, yeah, really cool. I, I, I've so. heard that they're doing this just in time compilation. I mean, I, I used it for version one, and like that was mm-hmm. the thing like where you had to specify what you needed, right? Like, and then I had to include everything there. Like, just just in time stuff is really, really cool. Yeah. So normally you'd have to extend using the this kind of config JS file, and you have to kind of you know say, okay, this is my color. So that's what I usually do is I, I put a bunch of brand colors in there, and then I just extend the current colors that they offer. So I've used them in the background, the text color, et cetera. But what you can do now is say you have like one element, you need to do something very specific, a very weird number or something that's not in the default library. You can always extend, but then you have to wait for it to compile. But what you can also do is you can say like, this thing is going to be like 64 rem high. So you could say like, okay, H dash, and then you use left, left square bracket, 64 REM, and then ending uh, square bracket. And it'll dynamically create the uh, class for you. So you don't actually have to go in and, and even have like a CSS file anymore. You could basically do most of the work yourself just by adding in these arbitrary files. And what the JIT does is it'll actually scan through your files. And I am doing this with the LEX and also the EEX templates. So it's actually going through my Phoenix files and actually creating classes for me, which is really, really cool. And then it could also purge anything I don't use. So it also notices all that too. So the CSS file that comes out is super, super small and very specific to my project. And it's really, uh, really, really cool. I, I really like this thing because there's always some elements you always have to be very specific with. And I think this is definitely useful. Now, my, my, I can just look at my HTML and my CSS together in one place. I don't have to think about where this class is being used, where it's not being used. So that's, that's really my big pick for this week. Cool. Sasha, what are your picks? I just have one pick, and it might even be something which a lot of people are already familiar with, but I've only recently discovered it. It's a library in Elixir called Bypass. And what it does, basically, it's like you, it really open, starts a plug server 
and you specify then expectations. So it's a testing thing. So you start a plug server, you specify, okay, I'm going to expect a request to this URL here with these headers and parameters. And then I'm going to send back a response just with the user, usual plug things you also do in Phoenix. And the cool thing there is because it really opens a, a connection from local host. You, when you, when you do tests, for example, for when you test your HTTP clients sending a request to an API, it goes through the whole stack, right? Like it really does build the HTTP stack and really sends it. So um, you don't leave out like this one thing in your test, which might then break on production because you didn't test it. So yeah, a lot of people might, might already be familiar with it, but I only recently discovered it. And it's pretty, pretty nice to use for all these HTTP client tests. All right, I'm going to throw out a few picks. I tend to pick more stuff along the lines of, hey, I'm running a podcast network. And so it's just stuff that I'm learning, things like that. If you want more in-depth stuff, it's also kind of my personal journey alongside that. Uh, go to devchat.tv slash premium and you can pick up the Doing Dev Chat premium podcast. And uh, I talk every week about, hey, this is what I'm working on. This is what I'm thinking about. This is what I've you know, gotten done this week, stuff like that. I've been on this who not how hiring slash getting people more involved in certain aspects of running the show's kick lately. And anyway, so since I mentioned it, who not how, I think I've mentioned it like every week for the last like three weeks on like every show I've been on. So, but it's, it's a terrific book. If you're trying to build a team, if you're trying to run a business, if you're trying to figure out how to get more stuff done, if you're kind of a mission driven or outcome driven sort of setup, anything like that, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. If you run any kind of organization, it, it basically just talks about how to build an organization, uh, get people in, build relationships, uh, to get done what you want to get done by empowering people to get to do the things that they're really good at. And that way they're fulfilled doing what they're good at and you're fulfilled doing what you're good at. So uh, yeah, that's, that's a pick. I really, uh, really dig these kind of growth books, okay? And so I'm actually rereading Who Not How right now. I just, I have the hardback version. It's sitting on my desk. And so when I get up in the morning and I'm, I'm going to pick another book, it's a resource. I don't follow their prescription really religiously, but it, I do kind of follow what they tell me to in the sense that I get up in the morning and I follow up routine. It, the book's called The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. And yeah. He, he kind of tells you to do a specific set of things in the morning. I do my own things, but the idea is pretty good. So definitely check that book out as well. The books that I've been listening to while I'm like either driving to swim the swim team or going on my runs or whatever, the latest ones that I've listened to are Psycho-Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz, which is terrific, by the way. It just talks about how you become the person that is or has what you want to have or be. And then the other book is As a Man Thinketh. And that's kind of more conceptual version of psycho-cybernetics, honestly. But it just talks about how your mindset determines what you get. And those are both terrific, terrific books. And so I'm going to pick both of those. I know I am picking a lot of stuff, but honestly, I, I've just been thinking very, very deeply about a lot of these things. And I really feel like this is stuff that we don't talk a lot about as developers. You know, we kind of talk about it either as a job or we talk about how we contribute to the community 
or we talk about what's going on in the community and we fail to talk about what we really want in the, from our careers, from our contributions, from our open source, where we want to go and then how we get there. And, and I really want to help people get there. So, so these books will all help you get there. If you're looking for more of that, the Dev Influencers podcast is where I'm talking more about that. I'm also trying to put out bonus episodes where I talk more about that, but I have other people putting demands on that sometimes. So, so devinfluencers.com slash podcast where you get the rest of that. And yeah, that's pretty much my picks. I'll save the rest of it for next week. I've got a ton of stuff that I just want to share, but I don't want to take all your time just saying, oh, and this and that. And that. Anyway, well, that was fun, guys. Yeah, totally. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.